Welcome to Lilypod episode 59, Real Love with Dr. Greg Bear. Jeff and Kathy Teichert, bringing you another episode of LilyPod, a production of Love in Later Years. We are certified life coaches, authors of the Amazon bestseller Intentional Courtship, and members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our messages are directed toward mid-singles and later married couples. We also welcome all who enjoy personal growth and enriching relationships. Friends, uh, today we have a special guest. This is Dr. Greg Bear, and Kathy's going to introduce him, and then I'll have a couple things to say, and we'll get into talking uh, with him. Dr. Greg Bear, MD, is a leader in the field of unconditional love, the founder of the Real Love Company, a nonprofit organization. He has authored and published 18 books internationally, produced a PBS TV special, created the Ridiculously Effective Parenting Training, conducted over 300 seminars and speeches worldwide, and has appeared on over 1,600 radio and TV shows, teaching principles that replace fear and anger with peace and confidence. Life can be confusing, frustrating, and difficult at home, in relationships, and at work. But Greg, he teaches transformational process that replaces all the crazy with meaning which we look forward to hearing more about today. Greg is the husband and father of seven children. For the huge library of resource materials he offers, much of which is free, visit reallove.com and realloveparenting.com. Links will be provided in the description of this interview. Welcome, Dr. Greg Bear. We are honored to have you on LilyTube for those who are watching and LilyPod for those who are listening. Thanks so much for joining us today. Love to be here. And I just want to add to, to what Kathy said. This is a special treat for me. Um, I first became aware of Dr. Greg Bear's work back in, I think it was 2009 or 10. Uh, I was going through a divorce at the time. And uh, someone that I really respected recommended his book, Real Love. And I read the book, and I'm going to tell you, for the first three-fourths of the way through it, I fought with it. And uh, I, because he teaches that real love is unconditional love, and that if I am, am giving tr uh, real love, I am not expecting anything in return. I'm not even expecting the other person <clears throat> to make the decisions that I think would be in the interest of myself or even our marriage, that I, that I am uh, giving love without an expectation in return. And I kept asking myself during this, what do you mean? I can't expect anything. Didn't she make vows? Didn't she make covenants with me? Uh, didn't she promise to always love me? And now she's not, you know? And I think there were two ideas that were central to getting me to surrender to this to this idea. It's a very bold idea, but one of those things was I was operating in fear that if I didn't demand or manipulate love, 
no one would give it to me voluntarily. Mm-hmm. And secondly, uh, the idea expressed over and over in, in the book, love not freely given is not real. And so anything I was getting by way of force, manipulation, guilt, whatever, was, was not real love. And it uh, was not even worth having compared to the real thing. And so uh, with that, I also want to say uh, Greg's story is kind of at the beginning of his book. And he talks about how he had all of the professional success in the world as an eye surgeon and spoke before large groups and uh, made lots and lots of money. And yet one day uh, found himself sitting in the woods behind his home with a gun to his own head. And I'll let Greg talk about uh, what led up to that and what followed. So sometimes people say, real love is such a bold concept and it's really helped my life. How did you come up with this? Um, I didn't. Um, or you are so wise. Well, if you count making all the mistakes you could possibly make and end up in the woods behind your house with a gun to your head wise, then okay. Um, <laughs> but I had to be woken up. So I believe the myth that pretty much everybody's been taught. You work hard, you do the right things, you keep the rules, keep the commandments, keep, pick a thing, do all the right stuff, you'll be happy, guaranteed. Well, I did all the right stuff all the right stuff. I was at best at everything, you know, the valedictorian, the top of college and med school, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, big wealthy practice and the happiness wasn't happening. And it was pretty discouraging. And so that's what got me going on. I, to escape my pain, I would use medicine, medication I could get at work. I had my own surgery center. So how hard do you think it was for me to get a hold of narcotics? Not. <laughs> Um, and so before long, I'm hooked on narcotics. I'm using them every day. I'm shooting them up. I am miserable. I would get off the narcotics and discover it was actually worse because now I didn't have my pain relief. And so I did get off narcotics. I was miserable, gunned to my head and decided to finally give up uh, doing it all everybody else's way, the therapy, the counseling, the did all that stuff. So formed my own group with a bunch of guys who were looking for happiness. And we tried that for a year. And at the end of the year, I noticed that we were beginning to actually feel loved by each other. But I couldn't quite put a word to that. So in my frustration, I finally sat down on the couch actually behind me and said, I give up speaking, I suppose, to heaven, God, screaming almost, teach me. And all of it happened after that. Never had so much inspiration in my life and it's just continued. That's where all the 18 books come from. It was just finally getting, I'd like to say humble, but that's not true, humbled uh, to the ground where I'd finally listened. So all the stuff in the books and the thousands of videos is really just me finally shutting up and listening listening to that uh, still small voice. Yeah, you, you can call it God, you can call it spirit, people who don't aren't particularly Christian. I don't care what they call it. Right. I haven't talked to a person yet who as I described this and I described that voice that you can't quite name, 
to people who are without religion or faith and they go, yeah, I know that. We all do. We just call it different stuff. You're uh, the, the theme or motto, I guess, of your book, of your first book anyway, is uh, with real love, nothing else matters. Without it, nothing else is enough. Tell us what real love is. It's so simple that people can't believe it when they first hear it. So if I care about you, I care about your happiness without wanting anything from you in return. I've spoken to tens of thousands of people personally, huge audiences, but I speak to long lines of people afterward, one-on-one. -on -one. And you know that most people say, I have never had such a moment in my entire life. Somebody always wants something from me. Gratitude, respect, understanding, cooperation, a return of something. They expect some kind of behavior or acknowledgement not in unconditional love and that's the problem because somebody always wants something from us if they then give us something and we know we're expecting to return something it now becomes a transaction right we're, we're trading and so i watch people who are dating for example oh that's just transactional hell it's terrible because here are people <laughs> out there and and they're putting their best foot forward and they're trying to look good because why because they're expecting something in return. The second I manipulate you for something, whatever you give me isn't going to feel freely given. It's not going to be satisfied. And almost invariably, I won't feel satisfied by it. So like in this conversation right now, you guys wrote me and you said, would you like to be on the podcast? My decision always goes like this. Do I want to give myself freely or not. I don't expect anything in return. So when people say, well, we're going to put your website up on the podcast and blah, blah, blah. And I go, okay, fine. But that's not why I'm doing this. I'm doing this because I care about you. And because I care about your audience, wherever they are, and I don't need anything in return. The returns will come. Just leave it alone and it'll come. And I answered your question kind of long, but does that help? Oh, yeah, that's great. And in fact, I want to go back to a point you made on transactional hell, <laughs> um, because a lot of our audience are Latter-day Saint mid-singles, and many of them have been hurt in the past and, and ended up divorced or whatever, and are really genuinely fearful about being vulnerable and open in relationships. And so I want to ask you about real love and dating, but I want to sort of set up this paradox and you kind of alluded to it. So being discriminating about who we build relationships with, uh, you've heard of people making lists. These are all the things I want in my future spouse. Um, and being discriminating might be in, in some ways what you call in your books, uh, protecting behavior. And yet, exercising real love is about focusing on the other without expecting anything in return. Now, somebody in the dating world might say, well, but are you just telling me to give real love and, and acceptance to the first person I meet and end up marrying that person? How, how would you suggest navigating that sort of paradox? So 
I've pretty much eliminated the word dating from my vocabulary. It, it's just, <laughs> it's a terrible word. It, it's information gathering. Right. That's what dating is, period. No kidding. Huh. So you go out with another person or you talk to another person, whether it's by Zoom or Skype or who cares. So you meet with this person and almost invariably our goal is to in some way either impress them, get them to like us, get them to something. You're doomed right from the beginning. So it's information gathering. So part of what you said was, my answer would be yes. Do you unconditionally love that person? Of course. Why would they not deserve your unconditional love? Ah, but now do we marry that person? <laughs> no, because we're gathering information. We're looking for a potential partner. I can unconditionally love anybody on my street. I unconditionally love my neighbors and they just love it. But looking for a partner is a different thing. So I'm unconditionally loving you and I'm telling you the truth about myself, about my flaws, mistakes, the whole deal. Not all on the first date, um, but bit by bit. And then I observe you. Just observe. This isn't a test. I'm just observe you for signs of ability to be truthful, number one quality in a potential partner. And for an interest in learning how to be unconditionally loving. But see, not unconditionally loving in return. Oh, see, now we've got a transactional <laughs> thing going on. No, it's unconditionally loving also. So when I went through a terrible divorce too, about a hundred years ago and, <laughs> and married my present partner. And that's what I was looking for. And I found somebody who was truthful, who had the appearance of being genuinely kind without being manipulative. And who was really interested in learning how to be more loving. Once you find a partner that has those qualities, you're kind of done. All this stuff on match.com is all the stuff that doesn't matter. So let's turn out that you find somebody who's a canoeing enthusiast like you. It turns out that canoeing is less enjoyable when the person in front of you, you hate. <laughs> so it's all about the loving and you'll develop common interests, guaranteed. So when I met a partner like that, I went, hmm. And we just kept having truthful loving and really vulnerable conversations so that I could see if she would be capable of also being unconditionally loving. Because in our present marriage, which is 100 years old, I unconditionally love her and I don't expect anything back and often don't get anything back. We just don't play that game. Then she unconditionally loves me. And those two events are often unrelated. It is so fun not to expect something from somebody else. Oh, you're, you're suddenly free of all of that pressure, all of that judgment and self-judgment. That help? Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. I, I have actually loved working with you and Donna as we've set up this interview. I can see why you married her. You are both very unconditionally loving and we've felt that from you. Yeah, both for of sure. you. I'm delighted. I, the, the way we live is the way we teach. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise it would be impossible. And I'm just here to tell your audience, it's fun. It's very, <laughs> diffi it's very difficult for people to give up transactions. Uh, parents are the worst offenders on the planet. We will actually give up on getting love from our spouse first. 
But right. our children, oh, no, no, we can manipulate them. And so we give them gifts, we expect thank yous, we give them attention, we expect loyalty and respect, and we go on and on. We are constant. I have people sit here on the couch next to me and just bawl their eyes out because as I reach out and just touch their hands and ask them how they're doing, people break into tears and say, nobody's ever really asked me that. They're always asking questions that lead to me doing something for them. When people say, how are you doing? They want to make sure you're doing okay before they next ask the next question, which is, I want something from you. <laughs> the, the, the pressure to perform is constant. And with unconditional love, there's no pressure ever. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. I, as you were talking, it reminded me of my first date with Kathy. And uh, while I didn't tell her everything on the first date, I told her a lot. And uh, uh, at the time, I had been laid off from my corporate job. I was broke. I was unemployed. I was starting to get a business going, but it was very early. And, uh, and I was couch surfing at my parents. And I, uh, and I had just been divorced for the second time. And she found out all this about me on the first date and she has you to thank for it. <laughs> but uh, the, the thing is, I, 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 I one concept I really loved in your book is this idea that, look, even if you succeed in selling yourself to someone uh, by wearing a mask and pretending to be something you're not, you'll never really feel loved because you will, that you will know that person loves the mask you're wearing, not, not who you really are. In fact, the worst result of going on a date and succeeding in selling the image is that you'll succeed. Right. Because if they buy into that, now you have to be that for the rest of your life and nobody can keep that up. And so right. you keep that image up. You might even keep it up all the way till the moment you get married and then you finally just quit doing it. And your right. partner is, let's say, understandably feeling betrayed because right. you did. You lied to him the whole time. Of course, your partner lied to you too. I've seen so many marriages break up, not making this up, on the honeymoon or within the first week because one, one of them decided to just let down the guard and the other one went, thought, well, who are you? So the idea on dates, most dating, um, services, apps, the goals in people's mind, it's to persuade somebody to like us. No, you're gathering information so that you can go through relationships faster. So do you want to learn that this isn't the person you want to spend this life and the next with in the first five minutes? Or, or do you want to learn it after 10 years and three kids? That actually a question and yet people do it all the time huh. yeah. know, 10 years good oh i was just gonna say uh we've written one book uh, so far and published it and it's called intentional courtship and maybe we should have called it intentional real information gathering <laughs> <laughs> well the word intentional gets halfway there yeah, yeah. well you, and intending to gather information you still put that in the title but that's what you're implying yeah, intending also to heal from loss and intending to show up as your very best self by doing personal work so that 
when you're in that, that conversation of information gathering, um, you're showing up as your real and best self, um, truly and authentically. Mm-hmm. So your real vulnerable self mm-hmm. would be vulnerable the way self. I would say it, rather than real best. Yes. It, only because the word best puts pressure on you immediately. That's true. What if you show up on a date and you're not feeling like your best self? then you darn well better be less than your best self and just tell your tell your partner hey i'm I'm having a crap day and here's why and i'm working on the wounds really that i've had from childhood and today five things touch those wounds see that's real and vulnerable i love that thank you for that reminder because that is important I wasn't trying to correct you. I'm just no, I, I, I think that is important. Uh, important. An important distinction is that we may want to become our best self in life, yes. but that doesn't mean we're always going to show up that way because life is messier than that. I'm always trying to be my best self. And occasionally I succeed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and because I'm constantly trying, I don't even care on the days that I don't show up as my best self. There are mornings that I wake up and go, you know, I just feel blah. And so I turn to Donna and first thing and I go, feeling blah, don't know why. It's not you. I'll let you know when it passes. There, now she doesn't feel any pressure at all to make me feel better. She doesn't have to feel bad because it might be her. And I'll get back there. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I love that. You know, I. As you were talking there, I, I was thinking about the, we hear a lot of people say, I hate dating. Oh, bet. And, uh, and I think the reason they hate dating is because of the games, uh, the, the mind games and the, the and, and really what we're really talking about when we talk about games is dishonesty. Yes. And, and that is exactly the opposite of what we're trying to teach people to do dating. We're saying, be yourself. And if they like you, you know, they like you. And if you, they don't, well, at least, you know, you're teaching them the right stuff. We have people dating according to the principles of real love all over the world. And they discover that far fewer people like them in the beginning, if they tell the truth, but they see, we're not looking for every, we're not looking for every oyster. We're looking for the ones with the pearls. Right. So you don't need a million people to superficially like you and like your Facebook page. You need one person who understands you, sees you, is honest about themselves and cares about you. That's all you need. One. And that is transformation. Oh, gosh. It's when so you find funny. that, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, you, your book says that very few people have ever experienced this in their whole life. Yeah, as in almost nobody. I travel all over the world. I've spoken to hundreds of seminars. And the number of people who've come up and experienced unconditional love is so much less than 1% that it's scary. Why? Pain. The world is filled with pain. Pick up a newspaper and all you're reading is the reactions to pain. People who did not feel sufficiently unconditionally loved. So Here's a new baby who comes into the world and everybody loves to, you know, oh, the cute little baby. Well, that's easy until the baby cries all night the first time <laughs> and feels the impatience of the parent. Nobody has to yell at this kid. 
The kid can feel impatience. I've watched it happen with little kids. When a, so an adult comes in the room who's simply impatient, who may not even be related to them, and the child stops having fun. In the absence of unconditional love, everything becomes wounding. It is the thing children need. Not more toys, not more electronics, not more entertainment. They need your love. And if they don't have it, they're going to react in all the ways you hate. And then you're going to blame the child. Why is this child disobedient, difficult, rebellious, uh, addictive? Why is he on his phone all the time? And the answer I give to parents is, give me a sec, you. You're the answer to all these behaviors. You're also the why of the problem. But see, that that's okay. If you hurt your children all that time, you're also the solution. So now we have a solution, which is why these days we do talk to a lot of people who date, but we're focusing mostly on parenting. Because if we don't get the little kids while they're young and teach the parents how to love that little kid, you can transform a three-year-old, no kidding, overnight. We've had parents who call just in tears at the whining and crying of their three-year-old. And I teach them a few things that they can begin to do. And they'll write back two days later saying, it's tough. I say, yeah, because you're loving the kid. You can transform a three-year-old in two days. A 35 or 50-year-old, not so much. So we're spending more time with parents and the parents of course have to feel some unconditional love before they can give it. But the cut, I recommend everybody to take the parenting training, why? Because if you have no children and never will have children, never had children, you'll understand yourself better. You'll understand dating better. You'll understand marriage better because frankly, we're all little kids dying to be loved. It's not complicated. Right. Yeah, in fact, if I, I know if Kathy's really upset, I think about what would I do to comfort a four-year-old? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I don't mean that in any sort of condescending way. She could do the same with me. Oh. Uh, but well, usually when we're fl emotionally flooded, our wounded inner children are coming up. We're not even yeah. fighting as adults anymore. If I'm having a, if I'm expressing some kind of impatience or irritation or what, I'm a four-year-old. That's right. how I act. I don't act like a reasoning adult. And so Donna doesn't treat me like one. She says, you, come here, sit down. Sits me down in a chair, pulls my socks off and starts massaging my feet. <laughs> As opposed to her taking responsibility for me feeling bad and trying to address that. No, I'm an infant. I'm an idiot also. And so <laughs> she treats me like an idiot infant. There, she rubs my feet and I'm going, oh, that's better. <laughs> like a mom kissing it better hey it's like sticking a bottle in my mouth to get really you know primitive it's <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean it's similar I I was saying the other night uh I told Kathy you know I am in a really bad mood and she yeah. said I'm sorry you're in a bad mood and she started running her fingers through my hair and within a few minutes bad mood was gone <laughs> because every single time uh, it, People can memorize this. Every single time you're in a bad mood, grouchy, attacking somebody, being a victim, irritable, it's a reaction to the wounds of a lifetime, not the thing that you're pointing at right now. 
watch somebody cutting some in front of somebody in traffic and man, they give them the finger and they scream at them. Are they screaming at somebody because they delayed their arrival wherever they're going by what, half a second? No, it's a repeat of the I don't care about you wound that they got all during their life. It's always a trigger. It's not about the present thing. And this thing is what you talked about in your own story that when I succeeded and did everything the way that my parents wanted me to, and I was responsible and I, and all of that, they loved me. And when I fell short of that, they loved me less. Yep. And they didn't mean to, there's no blaming here. But when parents say to me, why is my child having trouble? I say, you, you caused it all. But see, listen to my tone of voice. I say to them, I'm not blaming you like everybody else. To, if you're the problem, now you can fix it by learning how to love the child. Right. And I, I've heard you say, and I think you've alluded to it in this interview, but something about how when you're, uh, you know, you're not being unconditionally loving when you're disappointed or angry. Mm -hmm. Every single time. If, if I'm irritated at you, even if I don't speak loudly, I'm just testy and irritated. Would you ever feel unconditionally loved? No. Never. Well, neither do your kids. And neither does your spouse. And neither does the person you're dating. Anger is a loud declaration of me, me, me. That's why I'm angry. Because my needs weren't met like a four-year-old or a nursing babe. And so I take it out on you. I blame you because you're the proximate cause, but you're not. So anger is always hurtful and never loving. Boy, people hate hearing that one because we're kind of in love with our own anger. It's always justified. Yeah, but for anyone who's been on a receiving side of anger, which I think we all have, then it totally makes total sense. The most we, unpleasant thing in the world. So we hate anger more than anything on earth, but we always justify our anger at somebody else. But they did this. And I'm going, well, yeah, the person that was angry, you had a great reason too. Right. So actually, I have a question for you about this work. I mean, because this is a lot of personal work, right? To be able to show up as a loving, unconditionally loving person. Yep. Do you think that it's possible to master in this lifetime? Or do you think it's a lifetime of, of effort? So I used to think it was impossible. And now after doing it for quite a lot of years, I, I've learned that we can all absolutely master unconditional love for a minute and then what we do is we learn to do it for another minute and then we do it for two minutes and then we do it for two minutes over here and you know what happens the two the minute periods of time get longer and then magic they merge and now we can be i've gotten to the end of individual days i wish i could say all of them but mm, I'm working on it. Uh, I've gotten to the end of a whole day and realized I was unconditionally loving all day long. Do you know what a triumph that is? That's huge. Because, because in the past, I didn't think it was possible at all. So is it possible to master in this lifetime? Yes. Is it possible to master all day, every day? I couldn't tell you. <laughs> so it's a lifetime then, really. It's always a, a work in progress. Yes, and, and I know some of the really most pointed to advertised loving people on earth and they haven't mastered it and they've told me they haven't mastered it. So 
I'd say it was a lifetime effort, but we can enjoy the entire process along the I'm not waiting to be happy till I've mastered it. No, I'm going to enjoy the moments I have of being loving now. Yeah, I love that because it, it just helps us be where we are and make little bits of progress all the time and enjoy all of, all of it. And no bloody guilt. None. So and in, the meantime, mistake, in the meantime, in the meantime, those who love us. Oh, I'm sorry. In the meantime, those who love us, knowing that we're not always unconditionally loving and seeing that, yeah, we can feel more loved than we ever could have putting up the the mask. I'll, I'll, I'll say something to Donna in a slight tone, you know, just a little tone of impatience. Then I walk into the next room and realize, shoot. So I go back in the room and I say. I might have been less than loving when I said that she, and she looks at me and just goes, that's right. You were less than loving. <laughs> she doesn't let me off, but she didn't stab me with it. Nope. I came back and said it to her. Now, how long does it take for us to heal that particular moment? We're done. Right. It's over. Can you imagine not having to nurse a grudge or feel bad the rest of the day? I couldn't. No, if somebody offended me, I'd nurse that grudge all day long, at least. Yeah. And I think what you were saying early is not to feel guilt or shame that we're not perfect at loving unconditionally, because that's the part of the human experience. It's not, we're not meant to be perfect right now. Well, who taught us to be unconditionally loved? Nobody. We didn't even see it. We heard people claim to be loving, but then they'd get irritated. So our bar for loving is so low, a snake could crawl over it. It's just really bad. So we didn't learn it. Learning it is like learning to play a musical instrument. You learn to play it your entire your life. So if you make mistakes, just like on a musical instrument, you just go, mm, mistake. The more times you notice your mistakes, the, the less you will make them. Why? Because we're naturally good people. We are are i believe that with my whole soul because i've watched people just transform and i've also got to watch people who've been wounded long enough that it's absolutely extinguished the spark and there's nothing you can do and we tend to look at people like that and we go oh yeah they're the bad ones oh i don't think i don't see bad anymore i only see people who are so wounded that they closed the world out i worked with prisoners for 20 years and uh, some of their stories I listen to and just weep and go, how could you possibly have turned out normal? But we need to not feel guilty about our mistakes. They come from past pain and we're just gonna move on and practice being loving. Let me ask you a question on that specific subject as it relates to dating, because we've mentioned a lot of the people that, that are in our audience um, have gone through divorces or other relationship losses and, and have a certain amount of trauma over that. How does real love play into dealing with being triggered and afraid? There's no such thing as an atraumatic divorce. It's not possible. You divorce that person because one or both of you was severely unloving, whether you recognize it or not, it's usually both. Um, and we, we get married for the sole purpose of what? If you ask people, they'll give you a million answers. We were looking for somebody to love us and make us whole. That's why we get married. That's why we date, is looking for somebody like that. Well, in a divorce, that hope 
which was so deep-seated, it became just part of us. That hope is destroyed. The trauma of that is unspeakable. So what do you do? Yeah, it's terrible. You say to yourself, like I said to myself, was I loving, because I've been through a divorce, was I loving enough to be an unconditionally loving partner to that person? No. I never speak of that person's part in the divorce, ever, not to anybody. So what part did she have in the divorce? What do I care? I, it's not I my job control. to change her. But I can make a difference in my choices. So here's how you get rid of the trauma. I did my best. I failed. She did her best in her pain too and failed. So we've got two people in pain and I'll be darned. They couldn't create a loving relationship. No surprise there. So what's the only productive thing? I could grieve about the past. What a waste of life. Or I could say, yep, blew that. So now I'm going to learn to be an unconditionally loving person so that I, I can even recognize another unconditionally loving person. Because if you go out dating it, you don't know anything about unconditional love and you expect to find such a partner, <laughs> good luck. Their eyes will just pass right over you. So the whole goal is for me to become a more lo loving person. Then I can look for a partner. I don't look for a partner to complete me. I look yeah. to be relatively whole myself. Then if I find a relatively whole person, the math is incredible. If you're not loving, people hope that half a person plus half a person equals a whole person. No, not even close. Like two people on opposite sides of a canyon throwing their rope halfway across. Good luck. No, the, the, what we do is we bring two whole people to our marriage, and now one plus one equals a million. Oh, that's fun. That's the kind of marriage we want. Yeah. We got married on the 11th, and 11 is our number, and we like that one plus one equals 11, not two. We're much better together than we were individually. And great. we also teach about wholeness and becoming whole on our own so that we can show up in a partnership ready to love them. Mm -hmm. I think it's easy in, well, not easy, but relatively easy in mid-single life to think I'm healed because there's no one around triggering you. So how -hmm. do you suggest a mid-single person deal with that issue um, as they move through their experience? So people who expect to have any healing as a result of dating are dead before they start. So a guy, for example, have him read the real love book, forget dating and tell the truth about himself. And I mean, all the really massive screw ups of his life. How he, the first question I ask a guy who's looking to date is how did you blow your first relationship or your last one? And, and if he says, well, she was, a, I go, oh, you're dead. Cause you're going to find another person to blame. We, as I, for example, as I told you about how I'd completely blown my life and was taking drugs and obviously hurt my children and blew a marriage, did you feel closer or more far apart from me? Probably more far apart. As I'm telling you. No, no, no. Closer when you disclosed it. Yes. Right. Exactly. The more we, it turns out that we feel closest to people who are vulnerable and we don't really care what the content is. 
the more vulnerable they are, the more themselves they're being. And so then I just naturally am drawn to that. Well, guys need to practice that with guys first. Guys they're not going to be in a partnership with. Because if you can't be vulnerable with another guy, you will not be with your future partner. I love that actually, like to the idea of practice with the same sex, someone you're not going to be in an intimate partnership with to get, to get good mm-hmm. at it. The, the first groups that I ran for the first, oh, five, eight years, something like that. Cause I ran groups all over the place, all men, because as you have a gathering of men and one woman walks in, the whole conversation changes. Men, men stop being themselves. So we practice being vulnerable with each other. And then there was a woman's group or two or three, and they were doing their own work. And then we started to meet together. Oh, it was an entirely different experience. You got to practice with somebody with whom there is zero possibility of a future relationship, intimate relationship. Right. Practice with guys, women practice with women. And once you get good at it and you feel loved and you're more loving toward the people around you, friends, coworkers, children, whoever, maybe. We used to have a rule in our men's group. There were no rules, but it was like a guidance. If a guy decided he was ready to date, he would come into the room and he would say, I think I'm ready to date. And our rule was if more than half of the people in the room fell on the floor laughing. You probably weren't ready. <laughs> and so if you think you're ready to date, ask somebody who knows something about unconditional love, am I ready to date? I get asked that every single day by somebody. And why just yes or no? Uh, you're not even close. It's not an insult. It's just, you're not ready. If you've got two tires on your car, you're not ready to drive. It's just real simple. So I actually have a question based on this. Um, So one of the things we wrote about in intentional courtship is that you you're more likely ready to date if you can see your own part in your previous disintegration of of a previous relationship. Indispensable. This is based on your teachings. Yes, we've learned a lot from you. (laughs) And when when somebody asks me, I go, my fault. Well, I was recently asked by a woman and I just, and I want to just give this as like, I think this is very common. Okay. So a a woman or a man, if you had your spouse cheat on you, your spouse was an addict, your spouse did all these things that were very, very hurtful. And I tried to show up the best I could and I couldn't make it work. How do how would you recommend they go about seeing their part without shame, without feeling like they've got to take on all the responsibility of what they know isn't all of theirs, you know, and they, and not to wound them further, you know, with all the things they experienced. Good question. So instead of making it um, vague and generic, I'm just going to make it about you. And I have no idea if that's your history. So if I'm poking a wound, I don't mean to be. (laughs) Um, So I'm talking to you and your husband's cheated on you and you've gotten rid of him and that, oh, you're considering another relationship. Honey, one look at your face. I can tell as soon as people sit opposite me or even on Skype call, you are wounded your whole life, not just by this guy. You are so wounded that your entire being protects yourself all the time and is looking for attention as a substitute for unconditional love. So in the first place, 
you weren't mature enough to recognize this guy's wounds. He was going to cheat on you from the beginning. He was so wounded he was going to do something. He was going to become an alcoholic, a drug addict, a porn addict. He was going to do that. And you didn't have the maturity because you didn't have the love to spot that. So that was your first mistake. Second, when he was in pain and acted out or withdrew or did it, anything that was not loving, you reached out and tried to heal him. You reached out and tried to do things for him, make him feel better. You tried to take responsibility for the lack of unconditional love in his life and you were doomed. You needed to go find unconditional love from some women or a woman until you were prepared to deal with him. So you didn't spot the problem. You didn't cause the problem, but you did make it worse. So when he was begging you for unconditional love, which you didn't even realize at the time, you might've seen it as, I want more sex. That's what he was really saying. I want more love. And he got confused. And so you gave him more sex and that didn't work. So unwittingly you enabled him and made it worse and it got worse and worse. And then you started defending yourself and you started getting irritated and angry. Pretty much there is no such thing as an unsuspecting and unresponsible partner who was cheated on. They contributed to it every time. Am I blaming them? No, they just weren't prepared. So what do we do now? Whoosh. Is anyone ever prepared for that? Uh, pretty much no, mm -mm. unless the, the, the people who've been prepared with real love before they dated are miracles to behold. No kidding. They know what to look for. They have it themselves, not perfectly, no such thing, um, but they can spot it. And then they find a partner and they read, for example, intentional courting. They read real love and dating. They read real love and marriage. They get themselves ready to be a partner, and then they start working together with their partner. That's why, for example, in the Real Love and Marriage book, we've got a 40-day workbook. I tell people that if you complete the 40-day workbook, either your marriage will be much richer or you'll be divorced. Because hmm. you can't complete that book and answer all those questions and stay the same. You can't do it. Right. So I recommend people study thoroughly marriage before they even start dating because you got to see the goal. And if you're not ready, you're going to get tricked. Girl, women are going to get tr tricked by a guy who's pleasant and can be kind for a little bit, generous. And guys are going to get tricked by, well, the usual. She looks hot enough for me. Guys are, guys are it, it's odd that we use the term cheap and easy for women when men are the cheapest and easiest <laughs> creatures on earth. <laughs> <laughs> It's just, it's just how it is. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so I, I have a question about that. Um, not, not about that, <laughs> that specific uh, issue, but um, I, I think when, when people are, are uh, moving through their lives, there's a lot of talk about pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, oh, and for the audience, he's rolling his eyes. Uh, <laughs> absolutely and, kills me to hear that phrase. Anyway. Yep. yep. Anyone listening, he's usually rolled his eyes every time Jeff mentions something he's not. 
particularly <laughs> excited about. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, while I, I, I guess having a certain amount of, of strength and whatever is, is good, but, but I think you're teaching us a concept that we really need other people too. Uh, you want to go into that a little bit? So you're dying of thirst in the middle of the desert. And I come up to you in the middle of the desert and I say, well, what's wrong with you? Why don't you just give yourself a drink? At the very least, you'd be irritated that I would ask such a stupid question. <laughs> you can't give yourself what you don't have. Hence, the concept of self-love is absolute foolishness. It just doesn't work. We have to get it from somebody else. Uh, President Monson, uh, years ago, not so many years ago, said that the greatest power on earth today is the love of God as it's expressed through us. Mm. Bear, I haven't met personally a person who's just sat and read the Bible or whatever in their little chair or cubicle and felt God's love. Never met such a person. Maybe there is one, but I haven't met one and I've met a lot of people. We have to feel it from another person. It's we need the touch, we need the looks, we, we need to hear the tone of voice. The, the written word just isn't enough. The written word's wonderful, obviously. But we need, we need to feel this from each other. And that's what, why we used to meet in men's groups. Well, I still do when I go to see one. So you should see men just healing each other through love. If women saw the group, they'd go, are you kidding me? That's possible? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Awesome. That's great. So we actually talk about self-love on our podcast, on our videos, and you might not like it, but I do think it's coming from a similar understanding that um, we have loving energy from God, that, mm -hmm. that we came here with that, and yes. that we can tap into it. Yes, and we often call that self-love. It's actually finally allowing God's love. Yeah. Or other things that are confused with self-love are like losing self-loathing, hating yourself less. And people go, see, I'm loving myself. Now nah, you didn't lose your self-loathing unless somebody else get, gave you an idea of how lovable and adorable you are. Then you lost your self-loathing. We can't accomplish love in our heads. Right. But because God loves us, yes. we can get it from him. Yes. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Actually, that's the ultimate source. As I love you, all I'm doing is passing on what I've already gotten. In fact, sometimes I'm talking to people who have no belief in God. Uh, and I say to them, you feel loved as I'm holding your hand and looking to your eyes right now. And they say more love than I've ever felt in my life. I've never felt anything like this. And I say, proof that God loves you because I ain't good enough. I'm not good enough to lo love you and have you feel it that powerfully. So that's all we do is we love people. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and something I felt very comforted by when I was single and, um, and actively intentionally informational gathering, uh, if you will, I, I felt this power of love inside of me and believed that, okay, if, if I don't ever find the right match for me, find another unconditionally loving person, somebody that I can create a really good life with. 
I can be okay with this love. Like this is the love I'm, I'm blessing my life with because I'm filling it. I'm energizing with it and I'm giving it and I, um, and I'm allowing it, receiving it, all of that stuff. Um, because I think I show up better in our marriage when I don't need him to do something for me. I don't need him to love me. Um, for, for those of you who can't see, I'm giving her a kiss. I mean, that was perfect. That was perfectly said. When men or women ask me, do you think I'm ready to de- date? The first question I ask is, well, well do, you, do you need to, do you want to date? And if there is, it's not about the answer, it's about their tone. If they have this driving need to date, they're not ready. If they go, I don't know, my, my life's pretty good. You're ready to date. In fact, I'll call people out of the blue who I've just read their posts or I've read their emails. And I previously said they weren't ready to date. And I write them and say, now, now you're ready. Hmm. Yeah, because if if they need the other person, they're going to overload the relationship and cause it to collapse. They're not whole. If you're starving and you're on a diet, you don't go to the grocery store. Not a good time. And that's everybody's starving. And they're out in the grocery store looking for somebody to fill up their basket. Good luck. Because the person you're looking to fill up yours is looking for you to fill up theirs. This is a problem. I refer to it as two ticks trying to survive by sucking blood from each other. That doesn't last long. In our our, uh, religious faith, of course, we talk about agency. And I think in your books, you call that the law of choice. No difference. Uh, Yeah. uh, And so we talk a lot about honoring agency. Um, and I, I personally, I think that's where I messed up in my first marriage. Um, you know, it's not that I wanted anything bad for her or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I just wanted her to conform to what I thought was the right way. And, uh, and yet that's, you know, that's not something we really have the right to do to another Agency is the single most important principle in the universe. Not kidding. The, you watch, you look at every conflict, every conflict on earth between two partners, between a parent and a child, between two countries. Somebody's trying to control the age, the, the ability to choose or the agency of the other person. Not most of the time, every single time. Right. And so if, if you've got two people trying to do that to each other, it's going to be, <laughs> well, if you've got one person doing it, it's bad enough. But It's a nightmare. Um, and see, we always justify ourselves because see, what I need, I need, Jeff, I need this really bad. And so if I need it really bad, and especially if I'm in pain, then I have the right to tell you what to do. Right. No, I don't. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, I fell victim to that too. You know, I thought if I, if I was in pain, my wife should care. She should be willing to talk with me about it. And those were the very moments she wouldn't. And, yep. and in my book, that was like the unforgivable sin. And really, in some sense, the unforgivable sin was my pressure on her to change, to be different. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, I, I'm not literally saying it's unforgivable. I, I don't think that. But, but I do think that's, you know, that's part of owning our own part in it. And I, like you said, I think I had just sort of grown up with that idea. And, uh, mm-hmm. and, 
it's a real revelation when you think, yeah, if Kathy wanted to walk out on me or, you know, if she chose to do that, there's really nothing for me to do or say about it. Mm -mm. And if I try to control her, keep her from walking out, oh, it's going to get way worse. Right. That's, it's going to push her away faster. Uh -huh. So um, in terms of, of agency or the law of choice, do you think we disrespect it because we are afraid that we won't be loved unless we use force, manipulation, whatever, to get what we want? 100%. If somebody's bucket of unconditional love is full, without any coercion, without understanding any principles, they never manipulate other people because they're full. They're whole. Only unwhole people who are in pain manipulate others for what they want. Ever. How do I know? Because I've seen enough moments of people feeling unconditionally loved that, that it, all the demands and manipulation just stop. It's almost magical. It certainly is miraculous. But you look at it and go, wait, that's a different person. Yes, it is. And I get emails from somebody several times a day from all over saying, my entire life is different. Now that I feel loved, I'm not demanding. I'm not in pain. I'm not afraid. I don't hurt my children. I don't hurt my partner. It changes everything to be full. If, if That must be amazing to see that transformation. Oh, when that happens, I celebrate. I leave the call. I go find Donna and go, you got to read this or you got to hear this. Or It's like watching the parting of the Red Sea. In fact, I tell people who change, parting of the Red Sea is chump change compared to you changing your life. Yeah, the water, the water was just ordered to part. You made a choice to change your whole life. That is so cool. Coolest thing in the world. Um, I was going to ask you also when it comes to to, you know, people who are who are dating. I think we're pretty good at honoring other people's choices or their agency when we're dating. Sometimes we can become bitter if somebody breaks it off and that wasn't the result we wanted. Um, but it seems like once they've said vows, it's much, they're much more likely to become controlling or, you know, feel they're owed something or what, what is, um, what do you think we can do or, or people in our audience that are dating can do to build a dating relationship toward a, a real love kind of relationship after they're married where they're not trying to grasp and control and so on. So am I addressing dating people or people who are married? Dating people, like what should, what, like I think most of the time if I was dating Kathy and I said, you know, can you see me on Thursday? And she said, no, I've got something else that night. I could accept that and mm -hmm. pick a different night or whatever. But I think once we're married, we're less honoring of each other's choices sometimes. So what can we do dating to set the stage for a relationship that is more genuinely loving? Be more healed, period. Mm -hmm. If you're wounded and you go into a marriage, you're dead because the expectations that you'd managed to mostly hide when you were dating all come roaring out of the cave because the two of you stood before God and everybody and you said, here's what your partner hears. It doesn't matter what you said. Your partner hears, 
I promise to make you happy for the rest of your life. I will never fail. I will be with, be with you always and satisfy all your needs. That's what your partner hears. Nobody's ready for that. <laughs> so we, we've got to be more healed or we're going to constantly wound our partner and constantly be wounded by our partner. It's all about the healing. So for guys, the first step is always read the book and go practice telling the truth about yourself to men. And they go, oh, I don't really like being around men. And I go, I said, what? you asked me the question. I didn't ask you the question. <laughs> you asked me how to be more prepared. Guys, if you can't do this with guys, you're dead with a woman because your expectations with a woman are going to start off higher than they are with guys right off. And you're going to get confused pretty fast. Huh, interesting. I love get healed more, get healed more. Because I mean, we're always kind of in a work in progress that way too, right? Yep. And, uh, and I think people sometimes find it surprising that the first eight chapters of our 20 chapter book are about healing because yeah. it's so important. It's that important. Everybody wants to skip those eight chapters. I want to <laughs> go, go right to dating. I want to go right to kissing some woman and feeling valued and treasured. And I'm going, oh, you aren't even prepared to hold hands. You aren't prepared to look a woman in the eye, buddy. So we got to do the first eight chapters first. Yeah. Right. So the way that we would go about getting healed is going and finding, I think, what you call a wise man or wise woman uh, and maybe a group of them. Yes, that we can practice the these principles with, and and become more more loving, and we're getting our our sort of bucket filled up mm -hmm. by association with other people who are trying to understand the same thing. So let's let's say a guy says to me, well, "Where do I find this love?" Uh, and I say, "From people who have it." And naturally, his next question is, "Who are those people?" Which should be fairly revealing right off. Yeah, he's never had it. I say, do you have one friend that you consider a good friend? Yes. Would he do almost anything for you? Yes. That's actually unusual that a guy has one such guy. Did you know that? For women have lots of friends that would do that. Guys, we're lucky to have one. I say, so you, you go ask that one friend if he'd read this book with you, the real love book. And the two of you practice doing not just the book, but the workbook that goes along with it. And start your own group. Once you two get good, then you invite one other guy. That's where all our groups, and they just grew just exponentially. Men are drawn to this. If you go to a, if I do a seminar and it's just announced randomly in the press or wherever, two thirds to 70% of the, it's pretty close to 70% of the audience is women. And women are always bemoaning the fact that men are not into developing themselves. Well, they kind of suck in the beginning. And they, they're not drawn to that. But once a man be, sees the practical reward of telling the truth and feeling accepted, oh, men go nuts. They're, they're the ones that are really committed to this. No kidding. But they're just harder to attract in the beginning. So I tell a guy, start off with one friend, one, and then invite somebody else if you want. It just changes the world. Well, you know, it's really wonderful to hear that once they know the value, they catch on and they get involved. And that's our belief. And that is uh, part of our vision for Love and Later Years is to have an audience equal in men and women, mm -hmm. because we want to, uh, we want all of them to feel enlightened, all of them to feel he more healed, more mm -hmm. ready for real love in their life. 
And um, I think it's really great for us to know you and your experience with the men who are stepping up and being a part of this movement. That's amazing. Men are, men are great at this. They just need a little more motivation because people ask me, what's the biggest difference between men and women? Now, there's no such thing as men are like this and women are like that. But on the whole, women feel more and feel more easily. So for a guy who's an adult and you tell him it's all about the feeling, he's going, no, it's all about the doing. I want to get on a horse and ride for nine seconds. Um, I want to, they get stuff done. Whereas women will actually sit around and talk about their feelings. Now it turns out they're not very good at talking about their feelings. They complain a lot, but <laughs> men, don't, men don't even talk about their feelings. You could go into a men's locker room and sit there for 30 minutes and not hear two men address each other. I mean it. I was 40 years old, not making this up, before I learned one day as I was listening to two women talk that when women go into a restroom, they speak to each other. And I went, horrors, are you kidding me? I said, that's against the rules in men's rooms. So I bring it up just to point out that women, they really are less good at feeling and they're less good at talking about it, but they can get great at it. They just need practice. They need a little guidance, a little help. You know, I think we've seen uh, the statistics on our YouTube channel have really surprised me, but men and women listen to our videos in about equal numbers. Wow. Um, now, when we have a dinner or if we invite people for coaching, only women come. Well, not only, <laughs> but mostly. Vast yeah. majority. Yeah. And it makes me wonder if a lot of times men have this sort of unmet hunger or need, but they don't really want to be vulnerable enough to actually men, talk to a real person. Men are bloody terrified. Yeah. They're scared to bloody death of women. They're scared of each other. They're scared of their jobs. Men walk around in perpetual fear, which is why on the whole, they tend to behave more badly. I'm not kidding. Yeah. They're afraid. I, I, that completely resonates with me and with my experience as a man walking through this life. It's not a criticism of anybody. Men are just more, more they were never taught to deal with feelings. Women at least talk about them. As little girls, they've done studies to show that they show that little girls and little boys are relatively touched equally until about age four. And then at age four, oh, we stop touching the boys. We're done. Yeah. So the boy's like, well, you're on your own. Good luck, kid, for the rest of your life. So I no still wonder make my men... teenage boys give me hugs. <laughs> oh, honey, they just can't get enough of it. They love it. I mean, they I, give I'll, me hugs too. I'll, I'll wake up my 35-year-old son, you know, in the morning by lying down next to him and hugging him from head to toe and kissing his cheeks until he finally says, go away, I've got to get up. <laughs> <laughs> but but the, he loves every minute of it. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Um, I actually, so... I've loved this discussion and I think we could go on and on, but we do have to wrap up for time. I, I know you're willing probably to stay as long as we'd like, and we could talk to you forever. I mean, this is a, so much fun. Mm -hmm. um, but I do have a quick question about my understanding as we've read Real Love together as a couple in preparation for this interview and otherwise. Um, and also as we've been talking, um, 
I want to talk just a little bit about imitation love, which is the opposite mm. of real love. And maybe just re quickly review the four getting into protecting behaviors. Um, and it's my understanding that imitation love and your slogan for the, for the book and your organization with, with, with real love, without real love, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. Um, it kind of reminds me no, of with real love, nothing else matters without it. Nothing else is enough. That's, that's right. the way it goes. Something like that. Okay. So with that slogan, it sounds kind of like we're all addicted to imitation love. Oh, you, you're good. So it's kind of a little trick I do once in a while, not very often. So I have a thousand people in the audience and I'll say, everybody raise their hand who's an addict. Now, it turns out that roughly 10 to 20% of the population of the United States is addicted only to alcoholic drugs. Forget anger and controlling and all the other stuff, all the behavioral addictions, lying, anger alone is everybody. Um, and so how, how many of your addicts out of a thousand, there might be 10. When I say so, 10 to 20% of us are addicted except for here. No, I said the rest of you are pathologic liars and you're addicted to that. <laughs> and, and then of course, everybody just roars with laughter because I, I'm making fun of them just in light. We're, we are all, I don't mean most of us, we are all addicted to something. We're addicted to gaming, we're addicted to our phones, television, food, um, being angry, being right, defending ourselves. If you just take defending yourself and being right, everybody's addicted, everyone. There are no exceptions. I haven't run into, and I've run into some of the greatest people alive. So yes, dear, they are all addictions. Now, do we need to feel bad about them? No, we just need to be aware of them. And the more we heal, the less, we use them simply overcoming our addiction is meaningless. You can't just decide one day, I'm not going to be angry anymore. I just read a paper from somebody that was from the Harvard Business School and they were showing how important emotions are in the workplace. And so this professor of the Harvard Business School said, what we need to do is be more aware of when we're feeling angry and having negative emotions and just pretend to smile. And I'm thinking, you couldn't teach my third grader. <laughs> That's your solution is to pretend to smile. No, no, we need to get sufficient unconditional love that we're not angry, that we're not addicted to all these things. The happier I feel, the less I will use all those things because as I alluded to earlier, we are innately good people. And as you said, innately loved by God, no matter what mistakes we make, but we need to eliminate some of the mistakes, what some people would call repent, which has become almost a dirty word. We need to eliminate some of them because those are addictions that keep us from feeling him. That's why we repent, not because they're bad things, but because they interfere with my feeling as love, period. Yeah, that's, so, that's uh, really profound. So we're all addicted to something. Yep. And particularly imitation love. Mm -hmm. It's always awesome. imitation love. Always. Real love, because that's everywhere. Yeah. Um, and just really quickly review the getting and protecting, because I, I think these are really helpful. Sure. We use praise. Um, oh, you, oh, you look so great. You'll never hear me say those words till I'm dead. I haven't said them in 30 years, because we're always looking for something. We're look, looking for thank you, or we're looking... I love this scene. 
you look so good, so do you. And it said within a quarter second, it's just almost a social nicety. So constant praise, constant approval is what praise is. How do you tell you're addicted? What if the people around you stop doing it? You play the piano, you sing a song, and nobody claps, and nobody says a thing, and you're disappointed. Ah, addicted. No kidding. So praise, power. Power just means controlling another person. And we do it constantly all day long. We try to get people to do something for us. So we get them to believe a certain way. Power. Praise, power. I thought about a phrase. We aren't having any conversation that doesn't begin with you saying you're sorry. <laughs> uh-huh. Control, power. And in our defense, without enough unconditional love in our lives, we feel in pain and helpless. The biggest function of power is, well, partly to control other people. It's so we feel less helpless. That's why we do it. So praise, power, pleasure. So oh, food, entertainment, phone, sex, pick a thing because it temporarily distracts us from our pain. That's what all the forms of imitation love do. And then the last is safety. We'll, we'll do anything if we're in pain to prevent more pain. And so we run, we hide, we lie, we go to our room, we sulk, we whatever, safety. So we avoid pain. A lot of our mid-single listeners are in intense pain or have been because of divorces and things like that. And, and even as you talked about, just the way we grew up and uh, with parents and other leaders that didn't really know how to love us the way that, that God does. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I think this, what you're telling them is really profound because I've seen a lot of them go out and seek imitation love like crazy, even if they know it's destructive. Absolutely. I, mean, I, I can say it about myself, you know, that, Sometimes I I was in enough pain that I would have done almost anything to get a little moment of relief. Every single time I shot up drugs, I knew it was morally wrong, ethically wrong, medically wrong, legally wrong. And I was in enough pain that I did not care. care. Yeah. So when you see somebody who's addicted to name it, uh, we see as disgusting people who are addicted to porn, gaming. And I'm just going, just pain. Uh, What's the difference? Always to overcome pain or to get. Always. Finally, after all these years of shaming, I read a brief quote from President Ballard who said that um, those who kill themselves, suicide he was talking about, are simply trying to escape the pain of their lives. And I went, oh, kill me. First time I've ever heard somebody in a similar position of authority acknowledge that wrong, or what some people call sin, I just don't use the word very much, is a response to pain. Right. How do I know? Because when people feel perfectly loved, they don't do that stuff. They don't. I've seen it over and over again. A guy who's been a, recently, a guy who's been a porn addict for 35 years years he'd seen every leader counselor blah 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 been shamed to death and the first time i got on a skype call with him he said yeah i've been using for 35 years like you know yesterday and i said look at me look into my eyes i don't care and he said what he said i don't care he said he's i've never heard that i said i care about you 
what, what you just described is what you do when you're in pain. That's not you. That's you in pain. I don't care what you're like in pain. Anybody who claims to be in a, a state of meditative bliss, I can go into the next room, grab a fork, stab it in their leg and twist it around. And I can get them to behave badly. You bet. Put people in enough pain and they transform. So the goal isn't to get you to stop using porn. I said, I don't care about that. In fact, I'll never ask you. The goal is for you to find happy, healed and happy. And when you do, you'll quit using. So after two or three months of talking to him almost every day, one day he said, I didn't ask. He said, I've been clean for three months. I said, so the wow. way to the way to get healed and happy then is to find wise persons who uh, are capable of unconditional love and form relationships with them, not necessarily marriage relationships at first, but but healing relationships. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so we want our mid-single friends to reach out to a broad network of those wise people. Yep. And what's really amazing is that if any of our listeners or people viewing don't feel like they have anyone like that in their life, because there's a chance they might not. Right now. Yeah, that's right. There might, they, they might have no one. Except for God, who we yep. all have access to. And mm -hmm. he's the ultimate, perfect, unconditionally loving parent. I think sometimes we see him as we've seen our parents because we didn't we don't know how else to see him, but I think it's better to jump outside of that and see him as clearly as we possibly can and as he as he really is rather than as we project him to be. I I can't count how many times I've done this with people who are religious, not spiritual, not I don't care. I don't care about any of that stuff. And they say, so what's my next step? And out of my mouth, I don't plan it. I don't have like a program or an algorithm. I'll say, learn to pray. They say, well, I've prayed all my life. No, you really haven't. Learn to pray. And they say, how? I said, I'll do it with you right now. So I don't care. He doesn't care what you call him. So just be quiet, quiet inside, quiet. I said, no, you're thinking. Stop it. <laughs> so be quiet and then just say, because I because I happen to be talking to them. It could be you, but Greg's told me that you live and that you love me. And I've gotten really confused about that. So help me to feel you. End of prayer. That makes more difference to people than any single thing I'll ever do, other than touch their hand and hold, and love them. That with that same power. But it yes, the same power. Yeah. People just tend to feel it more easily when you're sitting this far from them. Yeah. But you can do it by yourself. It's harder because it requires more faith. There's less faith involved when somebody's holding your hand and looking into your eyes lovingly. But we can do it straight up. You just say, but eliminate all the begging and asking and forgive me. And, and I, no, eliminate all that stuff. I want to feel you. That's it. Oh, that's a prayer. 
It works. Yeah, That's profound. That. I really love that. And for any of our listeners who are feeling alone because they've lost someone as significant to them and they don't know who they can turn to, that is accessible. It is. Yep. And because I, I know because I did it and um, and it is transformational. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good and we can good question. Sorry. Oh, I was just telling her she asked a great question. Yeah. I was just praying. I was just praying. I was just praising her and leaving you out. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, I uh, no. I think we've we've learned a lot today. It's been uh, really amazing. Um, Greg, we thank you for the light and love you've spread in the world, and uh, and particularly for what your book meant in my life, and. Uh, you know, you don't always get to meet your heroes. I'm glad that today I got to meet this one. So uh, I love you guys. I really appreciate being on your podcast. We love you too. Thank you so much. And remember, any time is a great time for more love in your life. We'll catch you on the next episode of LilyPod. Subscribe to LilyPod get notice of each new weekly episode. If you enjoy what you heard, give us a positive review. We want to reach as many mid-singles and later married couples as possible, so please share this podcast with those you love. To access fabulous free content like written articles and YouTube videos on LilyDube, and to learn about our book Intentional Courtship and Lily Coaching Services, visit loveinlateryears.com.